Where are you going, Frank? I had nobody staring at me. Someplace exotic? Just tell me where you're going. Los Angeles. Hollywood. Hollywood. Pivotal film. I am Tom Nolan, and we are talking about our 100 most pivotal films. This is episode 97. Um, I feel like I want to jump right into this week. I feel like I don't want to make a bunch of preamble jokes about anything. I just kind of want to like jump into drinking beer, oh, okay. like as quickly as humanly possible, so we can get to talking about some movies as quickly as humanly, quickly as humanly possible. You're very excited. I am actually kind of very excited. So I think we have a lot of work to do tonight. Okay, I don't you? So. Maybe. I feel like we do. We'll see. I feel like we do have a lot of work to do. All right, so um, today's beer comes from uh, our local friends at the New England Brewing Company. It is called the Motuka Motuka Mayuka. American Pale Ale. It's an American Pale Ale. Um, and if you actually know how to correctly pronounce that, you can uh, send us an email at pivotalfilmpodcast at gmail.com and be angry. Well, I think I'm going to give it one more shot. Motuaka Mayuk. I think that's closer. It might still be grossly wrong, but maybe we're trying. I mean, at least we're, we are open to the fact that we are wrong. <laughs> and if we are... We're um, open to the fact that we're wrong about this. That's open, it. That's I'm the only time. Okay. Um, but, but uh, it, so maybe so, we should actually drink this beer. Yeah. Let, I'm going to tell... Why don't you pour it out? I'm going to, I'm going to tell... <laughs> Just on the ground. <laughs> Um, it's got hops from New Zealand, Ooh. which gives it an earthy, grassy hint mixed with heavy lime scents. There is Columbus, Motuaka hops, and Citra hops. Citra hops. Those are basically in everything now. Hmm. What's well, a lot of those New Zealand hops are actually getting hard to come by. Um, Why? Is there had, a thing in New Zealand? No, there's a couple. Maybe it was, maybe it's not might be Australian hops. There was a problem with the growing season a few years ago, so they actually became oh. incredibly rare. I don't know if it was New Zealand. might have been Australia. But they're only basically giving it to local beer companies. Huh. wonder who That's, they know. You know what's funny? Is, it's what's happening is happening is that every week we're talking more about the beer we're drinking. You know, postponing our film discussion. I actually had some feedback from a listener who said that they did enjoy the beer discussion more than the film okay. discussion. <laughs> Was that listener me? No, no, no. Man, um, it's the guy that I went to get this to get this beer with. So. He was like, uh, you know what? You guys were really good for about three to four minutes. After that, I just did not care. Mm. Oh, we we didn't tap our glasses. Oh, sorry. Oh, well, this Think. smells like a. I don't know if I've had this one before, but this smells like traditional New England. I mean, New England brewing. Um, it used to be very hoppy. I actually haven't even taken a sip yet. They used to be very hoppy, and they kind of moved over into those New England APAs, mm-hmm. you know, the very, like, we always have the stone fruity kind of taste. Yeah, yeah. Mm, not as hoppy as I expected. Pretty smooth. I don't want to say a creamy mouthfeel, but a nice, a nice coat. 
to the to the to the beer. It's definitely not syrupy. It well, no, it, sh- it shouldn't be syrupy. An no, 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 no. not going to be syrupy. But again, um, if it's if it's a crummy one, it just it is what it is. Well, <laughs> our friends at New England Brewing do not make crummy beers. <laughs> New England Brewing, located <laughs> in Woodbridge, Connecticut, behind <clears throat> your Jaguar dealer. I don't know what's Jaguar. Dealer. New England Brewing Company. Drink it. It's good. That's their motto. <laughs> I know. I'm, oh, I'm reading it off. I was wearing a New England Brewing T-shirt earlier today. Oh. I was like, "What does Matthew Sweet have anything to do with this?" <laughs> This is getting weird. Um, all right, so Mario, you went to the movies this weekend. I did. I went to the movies twice, and I also paid out of my own pocket because Movie Pass is going bankrupt. I feel like we should have a separate show. If we don't see anything next week, we ha- will have a Movie Pass discussion because I've been reading lots of articles, way more articles than I probably should about m- the demise of Movie Pass. It's 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 pretty. It's entertaining. It's like um, watching the Titanic with less people dying. So nobody's died. Not in the yet. demise of MoviePass. I mean, who knows? Mitch Lowell probably has a couple hits out. I don't know who that is. He's Who's... the CEO of MoviePass. Oh, he definitely has several hits um, out then. So yeah, I saw two movies. One I think we'll probably have a little bit more of a considerable discussion on. Mm-hmm. Um, the first one, a pretty popular movie of the weekend, the number one movie this weekend, was Mission Impossible Fallout. Mm. Uh, not much to say except, you know, piggybacking off of what we talked about last week with the state of the blockbuster about how everything seems pretty monotone and Mm -hmm. um rising stakes uh you know this film definitely had those sort of rising stakes but i believe that this felt like the first true blockbuster summer movie that i've seen in in years in the sense of um it felt like an event picture Mm -hmm. it's one of those movies that i'm I'm not i'm a major major fan of um going to imax to see an imax feature but i know some of these where some of the scenes were shot in IMAX. Did you see it in IMAX or XD? No, no, no. I just saw it on, on a 2D screen, like a popper. Um, I always see every. I mean, unless it's, like, oh, really yeah. significant. It's just, I don't know. Yeah, I might go see First Man in IMAX, but uh, it, a, lot of the, a lot of the scenes are shot in IMAX in First Man, like the, uh, oh, okay. the shuttle scenes. Yeah, I, oh, I can't wait to the... see a bunch of gra- grainy <laughs> 1960s looking film over, over a lot of over a lot of jazz with yeah with jazz screaming at me and complete. Oh no, he reshot all that unicorn powered surround sound. Um, but no, so so you know Tom Cruise famously does a lot of his own stunts. It actually one stunt in this movie cost the insurance company around seventy million dollars because he broke his ankle mm-hmm. and they had to delay filming by somewhere between five to eight weeks. But um. You know, just the fact that he does that and the fact that a lot of these uh, action sequences... The film's basically... It has a razor-thin plot. If you've seen any of the other Mission yeah, Impossible yeah, yeah. movies, you know what it is. Some terrorist organization wants to destroy the world. Tom Cruise and friends, you know, playing Ethan Hunt, but really it's just Tom Cruise. <laughs> Ving Rhames, Simon Pegg and friends, and uh, Rebecca Ferguson stopping said plot by jumping around the world and jumping out of planes and just fighting things. And, but but the, the, the really impressive part was a lot of the, these these action sequences um they held back on the cgi there was a, a great long shot of a, of a halo jump and i read about how the shot was actually composed um it was pretty interesting they they had uh, henry cavill walk towards you know jumping out of the plane mm-hmm. the camera turns to look at ethan hunt's re- reaction tom cruise's it cuts back the stunt actor has jumped out of the plane and then it follows tom cruise who actually performed the stunt jump out of the plane hmm. and then the camera person jumped out of the plane and so, as they're entirely falling, obviously, like, they, they jump over Paris, and so the background CGI of, of Paris is that it's through a storm, like, all that's done in CGI, but the actual jump itself isn't. Huh. And it's noticeable, is the fact that 
the action that's being performed close up in front of you is real. And so you get that, that adrenaline rush. You usually don't get that in action movies lately no. anymore. It's very, I, I, like, I, like I think I mentioned last week, uh, a lot of action movies now kind of a cartoon feel to them, mm-hmm. constantly raising the stakes. So you get a lot of CGI. You get a lot of removed from the natural discussion. Well, I can't imagine a, a lot of other action movies actually letting the star of their movie jump out of a plane. Yeah, and it's just, you know, Tom Cruise has so much bull dice allowed to do that. But, um, not a lot to say. I, I if, if you're a fan of the action film, um, if you're a miss for a good summer blockbuster mm-hmm. that makes you actually feel like you're watching something from the 90s, because this movie's very 90s feeling, despite its technology, um, I'd recommend going to see Mission Impossible Fallout. Unless you have Movie Pass and will only see movies on Movie Pass because it's blocked. <laughs> Why is it blocked? Uh, they are now going to block new releases for two weeks. All new releases or just like popular ones? Over 1,000 theaters. Any new release over 1,000 theaters. That's great. So they blocked two movies this week, which I thought were hilarious. Just talking about the movie that discussion really quick. They blocked Mission Impossible Fallout yep. and Leave No Trace. Huh. That because it was over a thousand screens. <laughs> it was now? it was on three hundred and sixteen screens. I think Mitch Lowe really hates Ben Foster. Oh, okay, I get that makes sense. He's really bitter over Hell or High Water. He really just wants to like, you know, get in the way of their Oscar chances as much yeah. as humanly possible. <laughs> he really didn't understand Winter's Bone. Neither did I. Um, but that's a wholly different conversation. Yeah, and we will not have that conversation because that's a we will never have that conversation. Either of our lists. Yes. Uh, the other movie I saw this weekend, and the one that I think might be a large conversation, and I kind of want to get your feelings on this movie first before... No, I'll, I'll, I'll share my feelings, because my, my opinions are more important, is uh, Bo Burnham's writing and directorial debut, Eighth Grade, mm-hmm. uh, starring Elsie Fisher as Kayla Day, a um, eighth grader in her last week of middle school, right before she enters high school, suffering from a bit of... suffering from a severe bit of generalized anxiety... And just dealing with her day-to-day life, um, trying to adjust and trying to fit in, um, going about the misadventures that an eighth-grade girl would be want to do Something in modern, we know lots about. Um, modern society. Mm-hmm. And you know, a lot of the reviews for this movie kind of focus in on how authentic of a take it is on the eighth-grade girl experience, and I'll accept that. Um, in the sense that I have yeah, I guess. absolutely no authority to say that. That, no. that part of the movie didn't speak to me. Um, it felt naturalistic in the way that an eighth grader um, may talk or the way that I remember my, like, at least, at least the boys, the eighth grade boys and that, how uh, my mindset was. Like, it felt yeah, like, too. Like, an, like an eighth grade boy. Um, but I, I just don't have the authority to say of how much of a real take it is on the insight of an eighth grade girl. Um, I do know somebody, you know, who's in eighth grade and a bit of anxiety, like it definitely captures that anxiety and feelings of want to get in. Um, however, I will say this, this is bar none, the top movie of the year for me. Huh. By far. Um, maybe one of the top films the past few years for me. Huh. And I say this not because of the fact it feels like an authentic view of eighth grade, but it is a movie that I will absolutely admit made me openly weep wow. during the um, scene by Josh Hamilton playing Mark, Which her one? father. The, fi- the fire pit During scene? the fire pit scene yeah. where he okay. explains to her, um, she asks him, you know, does being your daughter make you sad? And, you know, spoilers in this movie don't matter. There's no... 
gigantic twist. No, um, he doesn't throw her in the fire yeah. pit at the end of the scene. <laughs> what a twist. Uh, but he launches into this absolutely phenomenal three-minute monologue mm-hmm. about how, um, you know, no, absolutely not. You yeah, know, yeah, you, yeah. You, I, when your mother left, and this Bo Burnham does a phenomenal job of not really describing at all what happened to the mother until this scene. And he doesn't even know. really describe no. all that much then either. Um, you know, you don't know if the mother had died by this point, but now you know the mother left. Yeah. And that kind of ties, it definitely kind of reaffirms uh, Kayla's anxiety. Uh-huh. Um, and he launches into this about how I was afraid. Um, I didn't know what to do. And now, having raised you, uh, people say how great of a daughter you are, how phenomenal of a child you are, and how great of a job I've done raising you. And I haven't done any of that. You by yourself are just a naturally good person. And just uh-huh. launches into this this long monologue, and it's punctuated by scenes beforehand, where he's being a bit not really so much of a helicopter parent, but a parent who's definitely reaching out and trying to have affection for his daughter, give the daughter yeah. signs of love. You know, throwing a green bean in her face just as a joke, have to get her attention. I don't um, think he's being any of it. I mean, I thought that was really um, like a well done relationship. I don't think he's kind of being any of a helicopter. No, parent. no, not. At all. I think he's. I mean, I think, I mean, the one thing that you said when you, because you saw it first and then I saw it, was that it was, you know, one of the best representations of a father-daughter relationship that you would see. Yeah, this was the first, this was the first, I would, the reason I'm saying this, uh, just just to get this point out, um, this is the first time I've seen a movie that made me possibly want to be a father at some point. Yeah, I thought that um, as as a father, or actually not as even as a father. That's that's what I want your opinion. As a a a parent. I'm going to talk about this very specifically, and then you you can finish what you were going to say, and then we'll talk about the rest of the movie. Um, You never know what your kids are kind of going through, their thoughts. And you Mm -hmm. really can't just go, in the same way that when they're teenagers, you can't go excavating through their drawers and looking for stuff. It's like an invasion of privacy. It's an invasion of privacy to sit in front of your kid like 24 hours a day and demand you tell them what's going on with them. And I thought that was a really interesting point in the movie in that he had plenty of opportunities to do that to her, um, but he didn't. He respected her space. He respected um, his feelings about her that he articulates in that scene are um, are illustrated throughout the whole movie. He actually feels that way about her. He's not just trying to make her feel good. He's been doing it the whole time. Yeah. So the one part when he's kind of spying on her when she's at the mall with her friends, I think it's just, it's such a change. And the and it's a change for her so much. And she's not letting him in at all that he just can't, he can't just let her go without knowing what's supposed to be happening here. Um, and he's apologetic afterwards. He doesn't, he's not mad at, he's not mad at her. Um, he doesn't get in her face and demand anything of her. He maybe he even should have. Um, he lets her like he trusts her. He trusts her implicitly. It's it's a, and, and, a really and it's also following like a scene where you know she had first gone out um, with friends and what you can only assume is forever, mm-hmm. uh, and you know gets completely ignored and, and begs to come home an hour early and is just devastated. So right. it kind of makes sense why he would maybe react in that way to like kind of be at a far distance. He's not you know really close to him. He's it's, they just happen to see him. That scene doesn't work. I, that scene, um, that scene works because of all the other work that had been done previously in the movie, and which that is follows really too. which which follows, and it's it's nice that it it's <clears throat> excuse me, 
it's a real it's an example of a relationship that doesn't get seen a lot. They're not caricatures of of he's not a dad caricature kind of trying to and I thought that was a really interesting thing too. Um and I'll credit Bo Burnham for, you know, aspects of his script in the sense that his dad's not her dad's not a Philistine. He uses his technology in the same way that she uses technology. He's sitting downstairs in the dark looking at his tablet. He's making notes to himself on his phone. Um, <laughs> she hates bananas. That she hates bananas. Um, and that shows, like, 100% that he's not, like, constantly over. He has to make notes to right. himself about, like, the little intricacies of and he's not to- But he's not also not totally out of touch yeah. with what... Maybe not the specifics of what she's going through, but with the general um, qualities of her life. He's he's in he's in there, you know. I mean, he knows what Facebook is. And I'm sure he knows what Instagram is. And he knows what all this stuff is. He knows she has a phone, it's like she's using it in front of him, and he's acknowledging that she's using it. It's not like she's hiding it. It's not drugs. Um, I think a lesser movie would have tried to make something illicit out of the use of technology. Um, but yeah, and he, and like, but he doesn't. And there's not even a discussion about why the phone is broken. You know, there's there's nothing of like that. It just it just is. It just happens. You know, he just takes those like a kid breaking the phone. You don't know if it's a conversation that happens off the, off screen. It doesn't matter. No. It's 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 not intrusive. And then one of the things I really appreciate too, in that relationship is um, following that I think just extraordinarily well done, horrifying scene in the back seat. Uh, yeah, yeah, the yeah. Car. Oh, that was rough. Yeah. Um, and the scene, uh, once again, this, this is not a movie that that the that really has anything that's spoiled. Um, she goes out with a bunch of high schoolers after having shadowed a high schooler. Mm-hmm. You know, she's entering high school in the next year. Um, she goes out with a group, two bo- two men and two women high schoolers. Um, Who I think are ma- seniors, right? Yeah, they're all seniors. They're, yeah. all, they're all about ready to leave. They're mm-hmm. just because they say she's four, four, years, four years older. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you know what's left in the car is um, who's left in the car is Kayla. And uh, Riley, who's one of Olivia's friends, Olivia being the girl he uh, Kayla had shadowed, mm-hmm. um, he pulls over the car, gets in the back seat, proceeds to play a game of uh, truth or dare. Um, it never, it definitely crosses a line <laughs> in the sense of it's an 18-year-old and a 14-year-old, um, maybe a 15-year-old, but still definitely crosses that line. Mm-hmm. Uh, never crosses the line into any sort of sexual no. stuff, but definitely a very push of very aggressive and inappropriate relationship mm-hmm. and that scene's just done uh not in a relationship at all inappropriate act mm-hmm. um and that scene's just done so hor- horrifyingly it's done really well yeah, yeah. um it's, it makes you feel the anxiety that she must yeah, be feeling the anxiety and, and just the absolute intrusion and, and demeaning that that she undergoes when he you know says i'm a basically says i'm a nice guy well he said and as they're driving away um she says no. He puts his shirt back on, gets in the front of the car. She stays in the back seat. As they're driving away, he is telling her that he was trying to help her out. Yeah. That she's going to get to high school, and all these guys are going to proposition her, and you know she's going to get with one of them, and she's not going to know what to do, and then they're going to laugh at her in school. Um, he, he knows. He knows she's anxious. He he breaks into that. He just emotionally abuses her. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's a form of of mild psychological torture. Um, she gets home, breaks down, and I thought, which was just a brilliant choice is you know mark her father mm-hmm. just goes and comforts her doesn't ask doesn't intrude doesn't push her about what happened what happened he's just there for her yeah supports her hugs her <clears throat> which is uh, are you 
do you have more things to say? Because I would love to that's, piggyback off of that. That's my that's well that's the reason I love that this movie is just yeah. like, this is a movie that made so, me. I like that part that. too. Um, I like it a lot, and I think my problems with this movie, I, if I had to give this movie a grade, I would give it a B. I like it. I think actually Bo Burnham is a really good director. Um, I don't know if he's as good a writer as he is a director. So I think this this movie is like a, an aesthetic like triumph, mm-hmm. um, especially for 2018. Like it seems like a 2018 movie. It addresses all the things in the exact way that I think a 2018 movie about teenagers should probably be addressed. Um, well, I know, think coming from his background, but I'm, the, you I mean, know, he knows he's, you he's can, in touch with that aesthetic. Sure, but I mean, it's it would be easy to have, you know. A, a full orchestra playing just like a typical movie like doing score soundtrack stuff but they're not there's a lot of electronic music a lot of pulsing a lot of like the music is quick um, it's got a lot of beats in it yeah and, and uh, Sam, like when Aiden shows up like Aiden's theme is a sampled synth wave perturbator song which is it's loud and it's kind of obnoxious and crazy yeah. but that's the stuff but, that they're listening to so they're not and they and a lot of them are loud and obnoxious. Sure. Like, so it actually the music helps to fit like the character. So it's not like I think an older director who might be making this that might try to kind of uh, gerrymander a bunch of traditionalist film garbage into it, um, or to gerrymander probably more accurately this movie around a bunch of traditionalist film garbage. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's I think that's really good. I think he's really good at capturing the anxiety of what it means to be a teenager you know what i mean like you f- like when she's standing at the door waiting to go to that pool party in her one-piece bathing suit and all the other girls are like stick figures you know in bikinis um she makes you feel like her interior shame and yeah it's it's never the meaning to her no it's, it's, it's not it's always it's, just like you feel that same sort of shame it, 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 it somehow is able to capture I mean, at least for me, I don't know, for you, at least capture, even if it's not the same sort of anxiety, the, the a similar anxiety you felt at that age. Right, and I don't remember I don't remember what I felt at that age. I think maybe something like that. I don't have a very good memory in terms of my childhood. You might want to get that checked out. <laughs> You're only like three years older than me. Maybe. Um, no, I don't. I have a, a sense of like what I was doing, but I don't have a sense of what I was feeling. Um, but I understand that he wants me to feel anxious, and I felt anxious. My problems with this movie have more to do with, um, like, taking the easy way out, All right. um, narratively speaking. So one of the things I loved, and I wasn't sure how I felt about it when the movie started, but as the movie got going, I loved it, is her videos. And not the idea of her videos as much as how he was using her videos. So Kayla makes these um, kind of aspirational YouTube videos that she puts on, um, uh, on YouTube, obviously, um, about you know, how to have confidence or, or how to fit, how to fit in, or what does she say? Um, putting yourself out there. Like, what does this mean? And she just kind of, she kind of clumsily talks through it for the first couple. But then, um, and this kind of starts at the pool party, uh, Burnham starts using them as a kind of um, uh, narrator, but it's really like an interior monologue where she's having, she's, while she's having the experience, you're getting her interior thoughts about uh, processed thoughts about what that experience was like. So when she talks about having confidence at the party, 
she's referencing in her speech that she's giving in her movie um, what she was, how she felt when she was going to sing karaoke and everyone was watching her. You know, how, you know she had to have confidence. Because she had confidence, she feels like she could be confident to, to do other things. Um, I think that's such a great tool and, and device I, to have her like constantly analyzing herself as she's doing stuff um, is just really really well done and really sophisticated and I would take it one step further like to me it almost felt like chapter breaks um, it, would, it would be the concept would be introduced before mm-hmm. she would do one of her YouTube videos and then a concept would be followed up on right. so a lot of people might criticize it and they're not criticizing it right now the reviews were a bit outstanding but I, I could see something in years to come people criticizing it has exposition dumps um, but they're not exposition lazy- dumps yeah, but I, I, could, think, I could see people. But people are idiots coming out there and saying. So people that. can go fuck themselves. They're not exposition. exposition oh, we're doing dumps. so good. Not they're saying really the well. No, we hadn't said it at all this episode. Fuck that. No, I'm saying it all the time. <laughs> but um, um, so but, here's here's the thing. Okay. I, here's the thing that I don't like. He he sets up this really great tool that he's you know even if they are exposition dumps, they're really interesting exposition dumps. Oh, exactly. Because they're coming from her own psyche and talking about herself. Um, and they're earned. All I, of them are earned, right. too, from I would have, what you've seen before. I would have loved... So, and I think the thing that I like most about them is that because she's doing these kind of interior monologues slash exposition dumps, um, he is free to show things rather than tell us things. So in the scene you referenced earlier, when after she gets home from like you know being you know sexually assaulted in the back of the car and she stomps upstairs and she doesn't say anything to her dad um, and he just goes up and comforts her... Um, we don't have to hear, there doesn't have to be a 10 minute conversation where she tells him what happened and she's sad about it and like she breaks it down for herself and then he tells her why she doesn't have to do that. Um, he use, she uses the video that she makes after that saying that she's quit making videos to kind of express how she feels about that. Yeah, exactly. I would have loved, 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 loved to have seen the fire pit scene where she's burning her hopes and dreams as she says I would have loved to hear her thoughts and her analysis of those thoughts broken down by herself in in a video thing and then have a scene where have another scene with the dad where you get a very clear understanding of you know how he feels about her Rather than have it just kind of be like, this is, uh, rather than have Kayla say, this is what I think, and her dad say, you're wrong because of these reasons, I would have, it was, it was just cruising in this really sophisticated way, and then there's this just kind of feelings dump See, in I, the middle of it, and I was just like, oh, no, that's just too easy, like, do it, do it right. He, he was only like, it's only like an hour and 24 minutes, I it's think. It's like an hour and 33, but I think, I feel as though it's building to that that scene, that fire pit scene, a lot of the action I, builds I, to it. I, I agree feel with that, you. Like obviously, that's 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 your your punchline scene in the sense of it's where that it's is going. the scene it's where every, everything yeah. is leading to this fire pit scene. But I I feel as though doing more exposition, building up to it, or even following it, might have you know underlined the point too much. Well, like so, we're going to talk I, about. We're, it's interesting. I, I thought it was really funny that we're going to talk about. The, one of the movies we're going to talk about where there's a lot of um, the director uses a lot of um, you know voiceover because he has to because he, well he, he I guess he has to we can discuss <laughs> that too um, but it kind the, of works. the writer of the film might have been a bit 
primitive. <laughs> Might have been a bit dead for 300 years, but, well, you know. Um, I thought it was a really, like, more clever than Scorsese uses voiceover. Like, the video, the video analysis that she does and how he uses it was just so good and refreshing and excellent that I just, I kind of wanted, like, all these major things that happened to her get extrapolated through this video thing. I would have loved to have seen that done that way, too. And the thing that's also clever about that is the fact that it isn't showing, it isn't telling you. It isn't Mm -hmm. telling you her emotional state. It's telling you what she wants her emotional state to be, and then it shows you how she tries to do that. But it's not kind of show, it's not telling you what's going to happen. I mean, it's telling you what she's going to try to happen, but it makes sense in a day-to-day life that a person right. would do that, especially somebody who's 13 or 14 years old. Sure. Well, and that's a kind of th- that's one of the things I kind of I had to keep grappling with throughout watching this movie is that these kids are young. So I don't know how to interpret really a lot of the things that they're doing because they're supposed to be so young. Um, so the movie, I don't know how you feel about this, and I think I, I might, you know, I, I'm going to have way too much to say about this, so I'm not going to say that much about it. But the th- movie that kept jumping into my head was Lady Bird. The whole time I was watching it, I was just like, how does this compare to Lady Bird? How does this compare to Lady Bird? Um, but then as I've thought about it more, I was like, you can't compare them because Kayla's 13 and Lady Bird's 18. And, uh, and the, those distances, the distances in the lives that they're living is so great. Even just those five years, like the high school kid says, which I thought was another clever scene that they just used a high school kid to kind of state that generational difference. Um, in regards to technology slash everything in their life. She's a different generation than us. She's, she's right not a different people. generation. Yeah, she is. She's four years younger than us. I mean. Okay, but people who are like four years older than us felt like fucking 50 years old. It's like blatantly not Your true. sister? My sister just sucks. Okay, but like on top of that, she didn't have Twitter in middle school and we did. That made us different. Okay, well you're not different than us. <laughs> yeah. When did you get Snapchat? What grade? Fifth grade. Fifth grade. The differences between Kayla and Lady Bird are just too are too stark to really be compared. And and you know there's there's the generational gap. Um, Lady Bird takes place. Well, Lady Bird takes place in nineteen ninety nine two thousand. I'm just thinking about the way that kids Um, act. Yeah, and And, I don't know kind of like how they interact with each other. I still I still really feel as though something like Lady Bird um, was a a thirty three year old woman describing. An eighteen-year-old's experience—it it felt very artificial. To Again, me. we can have—you know—we can have this conversation for. I mean, we're not, we're not going to have. I don't think we are really. No, no, <laughs> yeah. no. no. But, I'm <laughs> but saying we could have this conversation for. Um, so let's not like go but, too deep into it. No, exactly. So, so, but that's just basically my feeling there. But this actually felt like, at least from my memories of being in eighth grade, um, and my memories of being around that age, it felt. And you know, I, I taught for a few years. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I dealt as an adult with, with people that age. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it feels very authentic to, to you know, wearing I, yeah. what you want to be on your sleeve, but presenting something different, presenting who you are. Well, that's kind of what I was thinking about, was that Lady Bird, it's because she's lived so much extra life, not obviously there's a generational disparity, but just in terms of like a teenage life, Lady Bird at least has some sense of who she is and who she wants to be. Kayla doesn't know anything, mm-hmm. um, which is a really interesting place to find a, a, a 2018 movie character who is even... She doesn't know anything when the movie starts, and she only knows a little bit when the movie ends. And that's, I think, one of the things that makes the ending so she's, good. She's hopeful to know in right. the future. 
and she gives her future self in one of her videos um, that she leaves in like a memory box um, a speech that kind of tackles that. Like, I don't know what you're going to be. I hope all of these things work out for you. But if they don't, um, that's okay. You too. know, there's a there's another life around the corner that's going to start as soon as you graduate high school. Exactly. Um, the other thing I just want to touch on real quick, and I would love to get your opinion of it. Um, the other thing that bothered me about this movie. Um, and not even the whole thing. It's just, and I think it's, I'll chalk it up more to the writing. Is that weird burst of self righteousness from Kayla at the end when she yells at Kennedy and her friend for like, "Why do you always try to be so cool? If you would love that game if you played it, you should stop trying to be so cool." And then she's really happy with herself, which I'm glad she had that catharsis for herself. But from a movie perspective, I don't know what Ken- I, think- I don't know what Kennedy or the other girl did to her. Besides, ignore her. Nothing like I at all. They're, they're so not, I don't know not, why she. I don't know why they deserve that kind of like weird self righteous outburst. That she. And that's the thing. And Kayla's on the internet all the time. And whenever you see Kennedy and her friend, they're always on the internet. So I'm not sure why, you know, um, the way that Kayla's living her life is supposed to be so much better than the way Kennedy's living her life. And I, I see. I, I don't know if it's so much that they deserved it as much as it just or that scene is used to get Kayla from where she is in the fire pit to getting Kayla to where she is leaving the scene. I agree video. with you. I think it's just the... Uh, um, so that kind and, of juxtaposes... Sure, like, like, obviously, that they're kind of like film antagonists almost in the sense of, you know, they, they all are helping to exacerbate the problem that Kayla's having. Mm-hmm. Um, doesn't necessarily mean they deserve it, I don't think. Because like, they're, argue... not, they're not bullying her. They just no, don't want to hang would, out And I her. would argue in the same thing that we just said about Kayla in the sense that she goes from not knowing anything about herself to knowing only very little about herself... They're in eighth grade too, so they're also they also may change drastically from who they are to where they're going to end up. Yeah. Um. And so it kind of bothered me that like you know who's Kayla to say that they're doing any that they're they're doing something wrong versus her who's maybe doing something right. Does I, the fact that she's having does the fact that she feels compelled to yell at them is that evidence that she feels her like. Life I mean, is right and theirs is wrong. I would say the character feels righteousness, like self-righteousness in that sense. Kayla feels self-righteousness, but I don't necessarily think the narrative frames it in such a way to say that that's 100% true. I, and I think I agree with you. Because they're all it, kids. Right. They all have very un, fully, unfully developed, like not fully developed Which thoughts. just makes me wonder if Bo Burnham, in writing this, could have found a different way for Kayla to kind of come to those, come to terms with that. Um, oh, I would agree. I, I think he was looking for. I, I think he was trying to do the most concise. I think so too. Story he wanted to do. get it. He wanted he to get wanted out of there in ninety minutes. Yeah, he wanted it yeah. to be, which which I think was smart because I think that film, that that pace of that film is perfect. I think. Mm-hmm. I think. I think it's edited incredibly well, and I think I, I think the writing in it's strong too, and it's an easy way out. But I, I felt as though there's enough narrative structure around it. Kayla's presented as an unreliable narrator. Mm-hmm. And so her argument against Kennedy is, is used as a framing device to, to tell that story, but I do not think in any way it's used to say she's right. It's just used to, to get the story where it needs to go as quickly as it can. I hope not. I, I, I mean, when I was watching it, I was like, ooh, that's, that's off-putting. Um, and, and I was hoping is, that And if it is, it's like one of those first director, first writer I, forgivenesses. I, I think, I would, yeah, I would, chalk it up, I would chalk it up to that. I would chalk it up to all the things that you're saying. Is that he just needed to get out of there? He needed this thing to happen now, you know. He gave him a week 
left of eighth grade. So waiting in line for graduation is a really good time to do that. Um, and, I, and I thought it was funny, too. I thought that was funny how it was, like, because typically I see things coming, but, like, the way he framed that shot of, like, her going towards Aiden, I thought she was going to, like, talk down Aiden. Yeah, yeah And I yeah. think it, it's presented that way. So having her turn like that and be like, Aiden doesn't matter was kind of a fun well, I decision. The, I thought the interesting thing about that scene was that she didn't never looked at them. She, like, had her eyes down she's the whole still, time. Because she's still nervous, yeah. She's still nervous, but I also wondered if she wasn't talking to herself a little bit. And, Maybe. again, this is all just kind of me trying to rewrite this movie and hoping that Bo Burnham was thinking one thing when on the screen to me it looked like he you was tell that 27 year old <laughs> I will we'll get we'll get him over, <laughs> we'll get him up to the fortress of solitude here and and he will uh <laughs> okay. we'll tell him a thing or two he'll beg for his release I'll get my 1990 what 1999 version of final draft out here we'll rewrite that <laughs> script um my one criticism uh just just my, my final point uh I do not like the character of Gabe. I did feel that as Bo Burnham kind of self-inserting himself. Um, I understand the point of trying. I, I do. I 100 get the narrative point. Like narr- the narrative point in, you know, presenting the fact that Kayla doesn't need to be one of the cool kids and that she could be with uh-huh. people who kind of share her interest. It just felt really artificial. And Gabe didn't. Re- Gabe was the one yeah. kid who didn't feel like an absolutely real. Well, here's a. I'll say this. Here's, and I I agree with you. I thought Gabe was weird, and I thought that it seemed like Burnham trying to draw a distinction between two different kinds of kids: the kids that really wanted to be adults, and the kids that were happy, kind of just playing being kids. Mm. And so, even though they're having a date, you know, and they're having dinner together, and they're sitting across from the table, they're eating chicken nuggets. I'm talking about Rick and Morty. We're talking about Rick and Morty. For too long. Was it seven (laughs) dipping sauces in front of them? And him telling her all about his, the reasons behind the choices of him getting a 20 piece McNugget and him having his archery certificate out. No, it's stupid. It's, I actually think it's cool. So we should probably get out of here before we spend another half hour. Um, Yeah, I think ultimately it's a very modern movie, which I think. I, I really appreciate it. I wasn't sure I was going to appreciate it. I feel like I, I wanted to resist all like the social media things yeah, that are it tells, happening. It tells a very straightforward narrative in a very technological age, and it uses technology to advance that story and advance that narrative, like you said previously yeah. with uh, Kayla kind of expressing exposition through social media. And I think I wanted them to hold her accountable for it, but then I realized that this is just life now. Mm-hmm. And I think this is a very... Uh, well-crafted um, narrative about what it's like to live, not just as an, as a 13-year-old in, in eighth grade, in eighth grader in general, but an eighth grader in 2018, 2017. And, you know, the eighth grade experience didn't really speak to me as much. I, I appreciate it kind of on an intellectual level. Mm-hmm. Uh, but ultimately, the, the entire authentic parent-father-daughter experience is the thing that really spoke to me and, and made it one of my favorite movies so far of the year. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, not a lot of cliches. He, you know, he avoids all the cliches. I think, exactly. especially in that relationship. Exactly. Uh, you know, there's 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 distance when there needs to be distance. There's comfort when there needs to be comfort. There's awkwardness. There's you know, hu- there's just humanity to mm. that relationship, and I appreciate that. Um, but I'd say anybody hasn't seen it yet, definitely go check it out. Yeah, it might not be in theaters for very much longer, so see it mm, while you can. All right, uh, we'll be back with ninety-seven. Ninety-seven after the break. Thank you.
All right, we're back. Uh, before we do the number 97, uh, we're going to drink another beer. Mario, what, what, what we got on tap right now? I've brought us uh, from Counterweight Brewing in Hamden, Connecticut, one of the other two of the three prolific breweries we, I think we've had today for me. I mean, yep. a lot of breweries in Connecticut are amazing, but the two of the three that speak the most to me. These are kind of like um, the, the f- pivotal breweries. Yeah, well, the breweries... The breweries that have that that are really out there. Yeah. Um, Counterweight actually, the breweries from one of the head brewers. I don't know if he's the head brewer anymore. Came from um, New England Brewing. New England Brewing. Yeah. Uh, so this is a double IPA, my favorite double IPA from them. Uh, it is Spiral Architect Blue Label. They have a blue label and a green label. What's the difference? Um, I don't remember. I just remember I'm I'm not the biggest fan of green label. Okay. A lot of people I know really like it. I, I'm not going to criticize it because it's a good beer. Mm-hmm. But like films, like we've talked about this with films, we'd always admit something's good if it doesn't really speak to us, but yeah, we can yeah. appreciate that it's good. That's one of those beers for me. I just don't love it. This uh-huh. one, though, I absolutely adore. This is one of the few very New England-style IPAs I really like. Okay. It's 8.2. Uh-huh. Have you ever had this one before? No, I've never had it. Ooh. That's just a, just... as they say in the culture, a juice bomb. Yeah, absolutely. Very, very fruity. Um, it does stay right there. I, I say this a lot. Stone fruit. Stone fruit and citrus to me. Mm-hmm. It tastes like a candied orange, a peach. Well, they say grapefruit peel. Wrapped around. I don't know. I don't know if I... It doesn't taste like that to me. It tastes like a peach wrapped around, or a nectarine, actually, wrapped around a candied orange. Like one of those orange gummies you get. Yeah, it's I, spicy, though. Although a lot of a beers I drink I taste like a candied yeah. orange. So I don't know if that's just maybe... They just Something put it off on my there. taste buds. No, I just maybe I just have broken taste buds. And everything you it does it does have like a nice it does have a nice kind of like, like um like spicy finish. And it does have a spicy finish, yeah. And like a nutmeggy finish, which would mm. be appropriate because it's a nutmeg state. Because we're in Connecticut. Oh, I wasn't sure if this is another Tilda Swinton joke. <laughs> That's gonna make sense, to everyone. <laughs> um, no, this is this is one of my favorite beers right now. Um, Counterweight's my second favorite brewery in Connecticut. Behind. Uh, a brewery we haven't had yet, um, which is very kitschy and very small. Where? Um, what is it? We'll have it soon. So. Oh. Wait, yeah. wait, wait. We're, we're doing multiple levels of intrigue on this show. Maybe we should do a live broadcast from there. <laughs> well. <laughs> I don't know where it good is. Luck, good luck getting it out on a farm, but okay. Why? They don't have power on farms? Oh, yeah, they do. There you go. I don't know what the Wi-Fi password is, though. Uh, I actually think they do have. We don't uh, need Wi-Fi. They do have Wi-Fi though. We don't need it. Not right. Let's do it. We'll do it yes. on location. All right. It has to be a Saturday or Sunday. It's the only days they're open. Project. Um, okay. But now onto the list. Now that what we've we're here for some homework to maybe. do, which is coordinate. We're here for beer and movies. Uh, Tom's number ninety-seven. Number ninety-seven for me as Steven Spielberg's two thousand and two film Catch Me If You Can, starring Leonardo DiCaprio as Frank Abagnale Jr. Christopher Walken as Frank Abagnale Sr. Tom Hanks as Agent Hanratty, uh, the FBI agent charged with bringing Frank to justice after Frank um, figures out how to pass counterfeit checks all over the universe. And featuring some early really good performances from Elizabeth Banks and Amy Adams, Amy Adams. Um, Ellen Pompeo for all of you. Yeah. Grey's Anatomy fans is in it. Jennifer Garner, I think, was maybe already Jennifer had Alias. She was already on Alias. She already had at the Alias. Time. She's actually uncredited in this movie. Really? Yeah. Oh, so she was. A, so she must have been a star. She was like sne- She like they snuck her in there. Um, and uh, which I really liked her in it. I always forget how much 
I like Jennifer Garner until I see Jennifer Garner in I mean, something. I feel like this is which early is in this weird podcast to kind of discuss this. But the only reason I don't think she, she works in that is she's so young. Yeah, she no, matches. No. She ma- like all the women her, tend the to way match. She carries herself. Yeah, like it was the good. Voice. You know, James Brolin. Or, um, James Brolin is also in it. Josh Brolin's dad. Mm. Um, I forget what her mother's name is. I don't know why I didn't write this down. I feel like an idiot. Who's who's mother? Um, Frank's mother is played by Natalie Bye. Um, I mean, I think those are all the major characters. And the cinematography is Janice Kaminsky, um, who worked with Spielberg on Schindler's List, and then every other Spielberg movie after that. Um, he also miraculously did the nineteen ninety five movie Little Giants, starring Ed O'Neill and Rick Moranis as coaches of youth football leagues. I don't, you don't have to describe Little Giants. Um, <laughs> if you guys haven't seen Little Giants, I just think none of our hundred pivotal films matter. I think it's interesting. they all center around the sun that is Little Giants. <laughs> Little Giants. I just think it's interesting that the guy that won the cinematography Oscar in '93 for Schindler's List and '98 for Saving Private Ryan, just in the middle like, of that, did Little Giants. He was like, you know what I need to wash the palate? <laughs> A football sandlot. <laughs> I don't want Dennis Leary. No. Give me Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, man. Yeah. And Al Bundy. And Al Bundy. You got and that's peak Al Bundy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that show would not fly anymore. So this <clears throat> so this movie is on my list, really. And I feel and like... And I'm curious, because... I'll, I'll say this, just, just because... Say it. Cause I, I want, say it. I don't mean to cut you off, and I want you to pontificate about why this movie's on your list. Sure, because sure, sure. I... I do not have a lot to say about this movie. Yep. And so I'm going to be quiet during a lot of this and just kind of yeah, finger yeah, yeah. On, on chin. Because this is a perfectly fun, good ride for me. Very much like The Terminal was in the same period no, of time. No, they're nothing like The Terminal. I, I, they're not, I like they're the not similar. I like The Terminal. It's Tom Hanks, Steve You and my wife are, are the only two people I know that like The Terminal. I enjoyed it. But it's a fun movie. It's an enjoyable ride, but it did nothing for me. And I rewatched sure. it kind of hoping it was going to do something for me. And it's still just fun. Right. So, so I want to hear why it's on your list. I saw it in 2002 when it came out in theaters. Um, it was 20. I think it was one of the first times I kind of recognized a professionally made movie. Not that I haven't seen professionally made movies before, but every choice was kind of preordained by the fact that each of these people were experts at what they were doing. So there actually isn't a poorly directed scene, I don't think. I think the cinematography in it is kind of fantastic for <laughs> a, just a regular movie. Yeah, there's no arguing that. Um, you know, there, you know, the cinematography just brings so much gravity into fairly, you know, standard film situations. Um, you know, it has all the typical late period Spielberg backlit stuff where people are kind of standing in the front and shadows and there's this big washed out light behind them that he seems to like to do all the time now. And for, and you know, like Michael Kahn's editing for yeah. uh, for a film that's two hours and 20 minutes. It's a little long, yeah. It doesn't ever feel long in the tooth. Mm-mm. So you, you've got a bunch of masters of their craft sure. doing work. And then you have like, uh, I don't want to say like anymore. And then you have someone like Tom Hanks who seems to really be enjoying himself. Yeah, everyone and, seemed to be having fun in this. Except for Leonardo DiCaprio. 
You think so? So I think this movie was kind of designed... I really like... I just... I, I remember really enjoying this movie a lot. And I don't like a lot of things anymore. I've <clears throat> been reading this... Um, there's a, there's a, a literary critic, essayist named David Shields, who kind of makes this point that um, if a work of art doesn't have useful existential knowledge um, that he can take away from it, then it's not, you know, it's not worth a candle. Um, is something he says a lot. And I kind of feel the same way at this point in my life. Um, and I have felt this way for a long time. If it doesn't have, if I can't take some, extract something personal from it, then I don't really have a lot of use for it. But it I think it doesn't this, have use art. I don't have a lot of use for the movie. It. Okay. I don't have a lot of. I was of, gonna bring up Ratatouille. No, I the Ratatouille I have a lot of use for. It. No, I was gonna bring up Peter O'Toole's uh, discussion in the end yeah, of Ratatouille yeah. about criticism means nothing compared to the actual sure. piece of junk art. Um. But I think I I had a lot of fun when I saw this movie. Like a lot of. Fun. Oh no, this movie's. A and lot I of wonder fun. if it's because it's, it's so sophisticated, but it's so simple. And because the sophistication makes it rise above its typical, just like, caper heist movie. You know, I think about something like... I think about something like um, The Score. Remember The Score? The Ed Edward Norton, Norton film? Marlon Brando yeah, and Robert Brando De Niro. His last performance, I yeah. think. Um, and how just heavy, but like how flat it was. And I think of something... Oh, Incredibly forgettable. Right. And I, what else? You know, there's a lot of movies that came Thomas out. Crown Affair. Thomas Crown Affair, the, the Italian Job. Talented Mr. Ripley to an extent for something that was really critically received. Not so much a right. heist film, but. It's something that, I, and something that I remember liking a lot also. Um, but they're all so flat. And the, but they're all, and they're, they're all simple, but they're all. Talented Mr. Ripley is a little more complicated. But those other heist movies, um, those type of crime Yeah, I think I just movies, wanted to throw Talented Mr. Ripley under the breath. No, it's kind of. It's, it's similar. Um, if we ever talked about other movies that almost made our list, Talented Ripley, Mr. Ripley would be on my list. Oh. Uh, one of my things. Um, I saw it a lot of The Incredible times. Mr. Limpet would be on my list. So there you go. We would yeah. make sure those matched up that week. <laughs> um, but it's he takes something that's very simple and he elevates it to something that's really great. Um, and I've seen it a bunch of times since I first saw it in theaters. And every time I watch it, I'm just, I just kind of sit back and let, and let the ride go. And it's nice. And I don't ever have nice experiences in movies. I'm either, I'm just, I'm, I wrestle with them trying to get what I can out of them. Even something like, eight, you know, eighth grade. I spent the first 20 minutes trying to relax because I was just analyzing the fuck out of it while I was watching it. And I was like, no, you can't analyze it. Just sit and then watch it and then analyze it later. And this is a movie where I'm not analyzing anything. It wasn't until later that night when I just saw it recently to do this that I kind of started putting these, this weird analysis together of what maybe might be going on under the surface here well that's why i want to that's why i want to know because i'd say this came out in a year where other fun ride movies come out yes um the first thing that pops in my head is sam Raimi's spider-man which is Mm -hmm. maybe maybe a bit weird to say but but i i I found that to be not the best movie but definitely a fun ride and like i kind of put this in i kind of put the two in the same wheelhouse i mean obviously catch me if you can is much better, much more well acted. Sure, the crew behind it is, but they're not massive, trying to do like, anything. Fantastic, you know what I mean? Yeah, no, exactly. And like, like they're both, both have competent crews and actor and cast behind them. Yeah. So, but I wonder what, like, what spoke to you so much about Catch Me If You Can in comparison to other movies of the same time? I was not a. I was never been like a a, a comic book movie or an action movie guy. So to me, I think 
um, this is my action movie. And there's another movie we're going to talk about in a few weeks that I feel like is very similar to this. Where they are action movies, in a sense, there's action that happens, there's people chasing each other. Um, the other movie has a lot more action set pieces, like traditional action set pieces. But the things that I really love about the movie are the very non-action set pieces things that are happening in the movie. And I remember, I've always remembered really liking those parts of the movie. But I would say the thing about Catch Me If You Can that, that really speaks to me in the same way that movies of the time that, that did the same sort of work is kinetic energy. That movie is, it constantly has a brisk pace, even when there's not a lot of action going, there's, there's a, a nice speed to it. There's, there's a nice action potential. Well, and you can argue, were, yeah, and you can argue, we're talking neurology. <laughs> and I would argue that the, the Jennifer Garner scene doesn't really work for me a lot of the times because it slows down the action. Where it's just it's it's it sits Does for it a minute. That, there's no of... no. I, I disagree. There's a nice cat and mouse to it. Where but, where where Frank plays that that back role of being like the mark, but right. the entire time he's playing her. Right, and that's fun. So well, like, I don't know like if a, he's, and that's a the nice thing we can, chess game going. And that's the thing we can. And that's like one of the things that I really like about. And those two have too. such charisma too They've between got, the, each other. Yeah, and I, I really think, wish those two had fucked like, in real life. <laughs> Maybe they probably did. Awesome. They should have. <laughs> um, I think that Leonardo DiCaprio was actually... I think this was, movie was kind of made for Leonardo DiCaprio to be in it. Um, because this is just... This is coming off of Gangs of New York, where he was okay at the best. It was definitely Martin Scorsese trying to make something you know what I mean well Martin's oh I don't I disagree I think Martin Scorsese really wanted to make that movie and he thought Leonardo DiCaprio could handle it and he couldn't handle it so um Cameron Diaz could no she definitely could not John Sue Briley could handle it that's who could fucking handle it and Brendan Gleeson oh yeah yeah, but that was expected and that other guy who people talk about sometimes when they talk about bat movies that Daniel Day-Lewis guy hmm who's he yeah um but I think, and I really appreciate Leonardo DiCaprio's performance in this movie. I love Leonardo DiCaprio. I appreciate his performance in this movie from the sense that I think a lesser actor could have oversold um, the confidence factor here. Where Neil, Leonardo DiCaprio, even when he's getting away with everything, never seems fully confident in what he's doing. Well, um, which to go off, to go I think off is kind of a just, it's, it's good because he doesn't have to do that. This performance doesn't have to be good. You know, it's a Steven Spielberg movie that, you know, has come after all these other successes. Everyone was going to see it. He could just kind of do whatever he wants. So I got to ask exactly what you mean by, like, coming off of Gangs of New York, though. Like, they, these movies came out like, right next to each other. Yeah, but he definitely made Gangs of New York first because they had oh, Gangs of New York for eternity. So, so, so you're, you're thinking more it was DiCaprio felt like he had to do something. I think DiCaprio was setting up a career at this point. He had come, this is, this is all post The Beach. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? It's like Titanic, The Beach. I don't think anything, right? Nothing that. Nothing comes major. Um, and then I think Leonardo DiCaprio is kind of setting up, like, Act Three of his career, where he had moved out of Growing Pains, What's Eating Gilbert Grape, into Titanic, The Beach, into I'm going to be an actor of substance, and he made a bunch of movies in a row where I think he was really trying hard. Um, yeah, he does. He does nothing be in between great. the beach. He does a small role in between the beach and gangs in New York, but I don't even know where that small role was done. So right. Um, 
so and after this, so you get Gangs of New York, you get this, you get the Aviator, you get the Departed follows. The Departed, and you get Jay Edgar. You get the part like, diamond. You, like once again, you get those kind of. He starts doing his back to back performances. He does sure. Catch Me If You Can and Gangs in New York, and he has AV. Oh, not Aviator. He has Departed and Blood Diamond. Um, and they and they him and Scorsese do Shutter Island. Uh, Shutter Island in the middle of that for no reason. Well, um, he has Shutter Island and Inception in the same year too. Which right. He. This is where he starts throwing <laughs> things at the wall to see what is his wheel. Which I can. Which I find kind of thrilling to watch. Like I a lot of times and we're gonna there's a bunch I have several more DiCaprio movies on my list. Um, you can sense that he's just working his fucking ass off, and I think it's great. And I think it's great to watch. And he kind of consumes people, especially into in Jay Edgar. No, not in Jay Edgar. But I think it's great to watch. I think it's great in the scene um, where Hanratty thinks he is caught. The Los, Ange- the Los Angeles, the Los Angeles, LA, yeah. Mm-hmm. And when they're in the hotel, and you know, Abigail comes out of the bathroom, and he pretends to be, you know, Secret Service. Hands on your head. Oh, that's the new IBM Selectric. Put your hands on your head. Print type in five seconds. Shut up. Pop out the ball. Put your hands on your head. Put your hands. You know, he's got over 200 checks here. Hands on your head. Drafting. He even has little payroll envelopes addressed to himself. Put it down. Drop it. Relax. You're late. All right. My name's Alan, Barry Allen, United States Secret Service. Your boy just tried to jump out the window. My partner has him in custody. I don't know what you're talking about. Um, There's a real kind of electricity to those two, their performance. And I think the same thing is said about, you can say the same thing about Christopher Walken and him, where um, they're both just, they're both just popping. And they both, I think the scene um, at the dinner table um, that we played in the intro, when he takes his dad out for dinner and he tells him he bought a Cadillac, um, I think I remember reading that that was improvised. That Walken did one thing and DiCaprio just kind of fed on it, and they just kind of went. Um, and it's just it's real and it's alive. It's a, and for a movie that didn't have to be alive, they actually ended up making an alive movie. And it's one of those things where I can ma- I can imagine Steven Spielberg in his director's chair with his hat pulled down over his eyes while everyone else just kind of did their work, and he just kind of woke up every once in a while to kind of look at a daily and say like, "Wow, that looks really good." You know, the acting is really amazing in this movie. Like, why are we doing... Why is everyone being so good? We can phone this in if we want to, but you guys are all being excellent. And as you're, as you're saying this, I'm actually looking up... Um, the, the one thing that kind of, like, that did hit me, and this is how impeccable the casting is. Oh, it's, it's perfect. I um, mean, I made a note of it here. It says, perfectly cast. And uh, so, you know, like, you buy the romance, the, the very temporary romance between Amy Adams and, and um, Leonardo DiCaprio. Sure. You... That, that scene between Jennifer Garner and DiCaprio is all that the energy it needs, even mm-hmm. though it's kind of like a slowdown scene. The, the relationship between Tom Hanks and DiCaprio and then DiCaprio and Walken makes perfect sense and everything, even... everything works. And this is coming, I almost want to say this speaks to the casting director. Deborah Zane is coming, uh, the, the, the casting direction. She's coming off of, she just has a really nice row of films. Mm-hmm. That she did Road to Perdition, Ocean's Eleven, and Traffic. And also Galaxy Quest immediately proceeds. There you go. But I would, I would actually, I make that joke about the Galaxy Quest. But like, is this a movie? Maybe that's not that, a joke about Galaxy but no, Quest. Everyone Gal- loves Galaxy Quest. And it's a great it's movie. Even casting like little known, you know, Sam Rockwell, who works so well with that. I, yeah. I must say this is like an achieve, like an achievement for her. And the fact, I mean, we don't know how much she had yeah, to deal with know. it. But this, I, I would agree that the, the the thing that works the most for this film, which 
has has a fantastic crew behind it is the believability in the interactions yeah. between all the actors. Well, that's I mean, I don't know if we want to close here. If you have anything more to say about it, we can say it. It is a per, it's a perfect entertainment. Um, and that's not something you get yeah, a lot of times. Yeah, the popcorn film. It is, it, is a, it is a great popcorn movie. I don't know anybody that has... I mean, you could say it's it's not Spielberg's best, but like we're measuring this against you know Schindler's List and Saving Private Ryan's and Jaws and everything else that Steven Spielberg has ever done in his whole life. And he's just like, oh, well, it's, you know, it's not those movies. No, it isn't. But it's perfect. I do. It's I do perfect wanna, in ways that some of those movies aren't perfect. I do want to ask one thing, though. Ask it. Because I, I think I think our discussion about this is, is would make people ask why it's here on the list. I, As opposed I think to what? Clean Shaven, Ratatouille, and Eyes Wide Shut all make an impact on you more than this does. So what makes this movie pop? Is it enough to you? say that this movie makes me happy? Yeah. No, perfectly. And I think that's... I actually didn't question... I've questioned some of the other... When we were first coming up with our lists, you know, I would move stuff around... Um, Catch Me If You Can has always been on my list because it just makes me smile. Mm-hmm. It's just a lot of good people doing really good work, making a good movie. Um, it's a solid script. It's a solid. It's a solid. I mean, the only thing I could say is I'm not a John. I'm not a John Williams guy. I think his scores are always a little too on the nose, except for his iconic like, yeah. archetypal scores. You know, like, you know, Star Wars and you know, Indiana Jones or did you do Indiana Jurassic. Jones? Park. Jurassic Park. Yeah. No, he, um, he the, definitely did Indiana Jones. The so. Superman score. Mm-hmm. Like, all that stuff is just... Harry Potter even now. Harry Potter. Like, the first, the original Harry Potter theme. Those are all archetypes now. Those represent, like, a deeper level of, like, movie scoring. Um, this one is kind of his second-tier score, where it's just very, oh, I don't, very obvious. Nothing, nothing you know, really... Uh, nothing ha- nothing's really happening here. Um, I think that's it's one, it's one flaw. Or, let's say it has two flaws. It's two flowers are John Williams score and that it isn't Schindler's List. Yeah, it makes me it makes me I mean it makes me smile, which a lot of these movies I mean next week's movie also makes me smile but for a completely different reason. Um, and I, I always call those I have a saying for those called comforter films mm. in the sense of every time it's snowing out uh there's movies I want to watch my number one movie is my ultimate comforter film. Um there's a snowstorm and I'm locked inside. It's weird. Really? You think so? I don't know if it's weird. For me, it's not weird. No, for you, it's not weird. Um, it's but, weird for a normal person. Oh, yeah. <laughs> As we know, I'm pretty fucked up. Um, I, think, I think I've talked about gore for almost all of my movies, though. There's no Which, body horror in this movie. Yeah, that movie is perfectly not that violent. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but no, I, I've had this conversation uh, of, for me, the comforter film and the film that during a snow day, you don't want to maybe not watch something new. You just want to have something that makes you feel warm and comfortable inside. And I can see this being... Being that, being yeah, the movie makes you feel a little. It's just a, it's, it's a nice hot chocolate and uh, donuts movie. It's one of those movies that you remember fought. like, you know, what a, what a good combo, hot chocolate and donuts. Yeah, let's do it. That's yeah. the next episode. No beer we'll that, that one, just hot chocolate and donuts. We'll do whiskey. Yeah, we'll drink a lot of whiskey in the winter. <laughs> those episodes are going to be bad. <laughs> those will be refilmed. Mario lives in a haunted house. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, no, I, I perfectly me, understand that. Yeah, I think it just and it's. It's one of the things I was thinking about. I was actually thinking that, about that a lot this week in the, you know, from moving from Clean Shaven to this. Um, two wildly different movies. Two wild, and, the, you know, next week we get even wilder with me is that. Um, no, no, I can see next week fitting in, in this wheelhouse. I just don't want. I don't know. Sometimes you just want what you were just describing. When, when you watch a movie, you just kind of want to be overwhelmed by 
you know, the aesthetic achievement and, 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 and feel good about what you're, what you're watching. You know what I mean? You don't want to have to be consumed by concern for the schizophrenic all the time. No, exactly. You know what I mean? And it's, you know, I don't know if Clean Shaven is a better movie than Catch Me If You Can. I don't know if Catch Me If You Can is a less good movie than anything that comes after it. But it's a it's, movie that fits it's a ninety seven right movie. You know what I mean? And yeah. I, I feel I feel good about jumping from something really heavy to something really light. And we kinda talked about this with um um last year's movies, um when we were you know, we both watched movies to catch up to the Oscars. And so I watched the Florida Project one night and then immediately afterwards to kind of like wash my eyeballs and my brain clean from having to sit with like just the heaviness of the Florida Project all night, I watched The Shape of Water, which sucks, but it's not it's not as heavy as the Florida Project. You no, know it's what I mean? It's you just kind of you need these movies in your life. You need these kind of these palate cleansers, these movies that you can just kind of fall back on and be like, oh, it's a good movie and it makes me it makes me smile. Yeah. You know what I mean? I feel like we're both gonna have some of these kind of scattered throughout our movies. Well you know what makes me smile? My number ninety seven coming right up. Just fucking kidding. My number 97 is 1971, Roman Polanski's Macbeth. Macbeth. The first of several adaptations and our direct translations to the screen of a Shakespeare play for me. Um, you have a few as well. Yep. Um, yeah, no, I, I adore this movie. It was critically maligned when it came out, mm-hmm. being a playboy production because he couldn't get funding otherwise and um a lot of people i think i don't know i don't know how much of a contemporary this movie is to caligula Uh, i think it's probably maybe predates caligula i'm I'm not 100 percent sure but people definitely spoke out against the um excess of violence and the perceived excess of nudity in this movie but uh for me all of that makes it a better production Mm. um it's a different production. No, exactly. Like, you know, if anything. I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a pretty big Shakespeare guy I, in terms of his tragedies. Mm-hmm. I fucking hate his comedies. I mm-hmm. think his comedies are, are very lowbrow. Not, I hate his comedies in the sense that they don't work for me. They worked for an audience 400 years ago. Um, Macbeth is my second favorite of his plays. My favorite is Titus Adronicus mm-hmm. for reasons we've talked about. It is my favorite play um, in the sense of... It's the most visceral. Mm-hmm. I, I feel it's his, one of his most modern of plays. Mm-hmm. I, I uh, for me personally, a lot of his other plays kind of speak to the platitudes uh, of mm-hmm. the, the time they came from. There's a really good quote from the Guardian review of the 2017 revival of production of um, from the National Theater from Michael Billington, mm-hmm. uh, who says like Macbeth can never be reduced to a set of moralistic crime does not play platitudes. It is beyond all else a supreme theatrical poem that has a language that eats at, into the soul. And I think, I think that's true in the fact that more than his other tragedies, maybe Titus Adronicus and uh, Lear kind of speak kind of to a villain or to a nihilist. Yeah. It, it speaks more to uh, very much the, a villain has protagonist. Well, I would argue, I think that the choice of the word eats is interesting in that review. 
in the sense that if you compare something like, you know, Hamlet, where when the play opens, his soul has already ostensibly been eaten. Um, yeah, he's been kind eaten, of he's trying to his, reconcile he's with his this new. Up. He's trying to reconcile with this new version of himself that he's kind of encountered. Um, he's made this, up his mind. Yeah, and he's made up his mind. This, he's kind of, kind of he's kind to, of in a certain place. You get to kind of watch the degradation of of a human. Yeah, exactly. Um, like you know, as pieces of him fall away, um, either through conversation or through action or through experience, um, and then you know, until what you're left with at the end is someone who seems very aware of the idea that he's kind of a husk of the person that he used to be. A husk, and 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 goes from, you know, in the beginning of Macbeth, and Macbeth is. 100% presented as a war hero. Um, you know, he's, when he's, when Duncan first sees him, he calls him, you know, brave Macbeth. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and one of the things that I'll talk about here is how Plants kind of introduces him. I like, uh, he starts as a brave nobleman, somebody supporting the king, talks himself into murdering the king, taking over, and then for the betterment of the state almost, then fully embraces the fact that he's a despot and doesn't give a fuck. Yeah. And I enjoy that. I was, I was introduced to Macbeth in high school. Mm-hmm. And actually, my first viewing of this movie was in a 10th grade English slash history class. It was mm-hmm. a double block class. Um, and I had seen other variations of Macbeth prior uh, in our classes. I'd seen Orson Welles' troubled production mm-hmm. of Macbeth. Um, I had seen... I actually had not seen, but I would see very shortly uh, another variation of Macbeth that we'll talk about later mm-hmm. in a future episode. Uh, I think it shows up on your li- yep. list. Mm-hmm. Um, but my, my teacher at the time had decided to show us Plancy's Macbeth. And I the, the production of this uh, was maligned, as I mentioned. Yeah, yeah. Um, it immediately follows the death. This is the first film that follows the death of his wife, Sharon Tate, and one of the most infamous yeah. awful murders. By the Manson um, family. By the Manson family. Yeah. Uh, not, I'm not a huge proponent of the death penalty, but that was definitely one of those times. In the exploration of this episode, I read into it and I was like, mm, fuck it. Like, well, capital punishment would have worked in this one yeah, case. Yeah, I mean, it's funny because, you know, um, we Thanks, actually, Jerry Davis. We- <laughs> Jerry Brown. Sorry, Jerry Brown. Not, I almost said, I mixed up Jerry Davis. Our Gary Davis and Jerry, and Jerry Brown. Brown. I'm not sure Jerry Brown was governor at the time. Um, you know, we both kind of dug into the scholarship um, that's kind of, you know, blossomed out of this film. Um, every single academic article that I have read mentions that it was the first movie that got made after, you know, Sharon Tate's murder. And, and there's a lot of explorations in the fact of its violence and its brutality being an aspect of the murder. Right. And I don't buy that. I'm going to talk about that a little bit later. Um, mm-hmm. Polanski adamantly spoke out against that, and I, I fully believe him. Well, it's just not... I mean, yeah, we'll talk about it later. But I don't think it's... It's just not there. But no. we'll talk about... We'll go into more detail when we get there. But but one of the first big things that spoke to me in this is, is its relationship with, with naturalism. And it's it's focused to add up to a modern audience, uh, more so than I think a lot of pl- variations of Shakespeare did. I, there was there was a lot of editing, you know, in all theatrical productions of Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. I think forty percent of the original script yeah. is retained in this. Yeah, um, I mean, to the I think to the and, and, and to the benefit of to the, the benefit play. of the screenplay. I think to the detriment of the play. I think it works better as a movie 
you know, with everything cut out of it. To the betterment, I, I would argue, of the understand of the audience to understand the themes and the language. They just, yeah, you're right. They extrapolated um, all the necessary stuff and made it, and that was what everyone said. For example, mentioning back to, to Duncan's line about Brave Macbeth, where he first sees him on the battlefield, mm-hmm. that they cut that by 20 or so lines. Uh, Polanski and Kenneth Tynan um, adapted the script, who, who, was a, who was a theater critic at the time, right. and, a, and a critic, you know, a known scholar. Mm-hmm. Um, they cut that by 20-some lines, and all the... All that editing is is absolutely appropriate. There's so there's a lot of repetition that that was that was in the theater, um, you know, in the in the Globe Theater of Shakespeare's time that that needed to be cut. And um, there there's a really nice article uh, from Plot and Theme um, from Derek Jacobs that said that like Polanski's true triumph uh, lay in how quickly he gets to the point and how clear is the resulting language. Mm-hmm. And I I think that's important is the fact that. This is very much a modern telling of Macbeth, at least for its time. It's a movie. There's other productions of Shakespeare that preceded it that I prefer. But this was the first one that I think that spoke to its audience and, and did not necessarily see it as an academic endeavor, right. but saw it as a film that could be told throughout time. And that's something that we really promote in Shakespeare. And I think, that's, I think is important in Shakespeare is, I think so too. is telling it throughout time. Well, I think, and just to interject real quick, I mean, I would compare this movie only in terms of an incomplete um, play versus a complete play to something like Kenneth Branagh's Hamlet where every word of Hamlet is in that play and it's all told in order and it just goes from the beginning of the play to the end of the play exactly how Shakespeare wrote it but it's four hours long and I, I actually felt like the fact that like Barana did something like that was in response to the fact that Polanski opened up the doorways to allowing an editorialization of Shakespeare and a contemporization of Shakespeare with this version. And I think it's, I think it's, and I think when you're making a movie, and I, you know, I really like that Kenneth Branagh thing, um, you know, just for what it is, it's, it's pretty ballsy to make a four-hour, you know, movie of Hamlet. But if you're making a, a real movie that's supposed to be enjoyed, that you want to be able to carry visual themes with as well, and not just kind of stage a play and film it. Um, you got to do it. You got to yeah. cut it. You got to cut that stuff out because from a movie perspective, you don't have to have people. And I feel like, you know, I read this in one of the articles I've got in front of me um, is that he realized that you didn't have to have to do. You could do this. A lot of the stuff that people were saying in the play, you could do visually. So you didn't have to waste an extra 15 minutes per scene having people kind of describe X, Y and Z. You could just show it. No. And exactly. And that, that goes into my second point. Just 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 in the fact of how much this movie revels in its naturalism. Mm-hmm. Um, I felt like a lot of Shakespeare needed to kind of dwell in this superstition. A lot of the criticism of the time uh, spoke out against the naturalism in the play versus its superstition. But I, I you know, beyond the witch's prophecy, mm-hmm. Macbeth's a very naturalistic play. It's, it's very much a human tale mm-hmm. and a human tale of, of a descent in into madness mm-hmm. you know into madness both from lady macbeth and then also from macbeth as well and you know the the decision to choose somebody like uh gilbert taylor mm-hmm. to do the cinematography who presents a renowned cinematographer this is the man who would frame dr strangelove hard day's night the omen hard day's night um 
Star Wars. Yeah. Yeah, the F- fucking Star Wars. Flash Gordon. <laughs> Voyage of the Rock Aliens. Well, now we're starting to <laughs> tail off. But but now we're, now we're in the Gilbert Taylor needs to work. Right? <laughs> but somebody who yeah, 100% had yeah. an eye. Well, he um, mean, And he just makes it so muddy, so grim, so washed. Can I raise my hand and ask a question? In the front. <laughs> I think it's... I... It is gritty and grim and washed. I just think it's so weird. And I think we could do a whole show on different cinematographers and like how they've, you know, how different films require different things. And I feel like if you juxtapose something as bright and shiny and like explosive as Hard Day's Night with this, like there are cinematographers that are working out there that are just, that can do anything. Mm. In, 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 they can they can adjust their craft completely dependent on what like the director needs and what the film requires, and I just kind of found it fascinating when I was reading back the credits that he had done. I was I found it really fascinating. Like Star Wars, I didn't you know Star Wars is Star Wars, but like Hard Day's Night that has like a visual language, but and I it doesn't also, compare to this at all. I think that's a purposeful choice to choose a. a, a as a director of photography who has who has such a vision, who right. is known to have such a vision. Doctor Strangelove sparkles on the screen. It only really exists because of the cinematography. Yeah, no, there's. You know what I mean? We're going to talk about Doctor Strangelove later on. Uh huh. And if we're not, we're going to correct that because we're going to talk about Doctor Strangelove later on. Um. But there was there was an interview with Gil Taylor mm-hmm. later um, a- after this this movie was made where he says nothing is ever static and that's true everything about this moves there's constant movement there's constant life in this film and for a movie that's a play that that by its very nature three hours long you know just has written but this film's two hours and 20 minutes but has long pauses where they establish going into the castle you know where duncan's going to be slain but they build on that for a minute. But you don't even need you don't even need to do that. Mm-hmm. But just as an opposing frame, or even the fact that there's been articles written right after uh, one of the articles you presented by by uh, I believe it's Samuel Kroll or Stephen Kroll. Um, the opening shot uh, of Roman yeah. Polanski. There's, there's literally an article written almost right a few years after from, uh, sorry, Norman Silverstein from the Queen's College about the opening shot of Roman Polanski's Macbeth and talking about how the entire sequence where the witches are introduced versus this, this long establishing shot is just one continuous frame. Like, that's purposeful. That, but that it, it dwells you into this muddy, grimy human world well, that I think a lot of people didn't do before because every other production that predates it that's very that's a direct production that's not so much an adaptation of shakespeare yeah, yeah. presents it has a th- uh, as we talked about previously with night of the opera mm-hmm. um three walls three walls and the audience yeah. is on the screen this movie doesn't do that which this makes, is this is a living movie that that fully surrounds the audience which makes those first instances of violence that much more thrilling and compelling and interesting um because you have a kind of live you have a live camera that's shooting a real beach that so you you know when the witches are burying the hand and the dagger and the noose um and then you leave that and then you go to the soldier kind of just bludgeoning that semi-live body with yeah. a mace 
you know, as just that as, long, that same shot, just know, that, that that slow beating and, and the slow and expanse of blood, and he's slipping on the sand. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's just it's very it's very naturalistic and kind of sets up the rest of the movie, wherein like um, the castle is really just like a an, a glorified farmhouse. Yeah, exactly. You know what I mean, there's guys like peeing on the walls. There's animals everywhere. Everyone's capes are dragged well, through the mud. That famous. Um, Back to scene one scene, the comedic break is not presented as comedy. No. It's, it's presented as really dirty and disgusting. And a lot of this is presented as dirty and disgusting. And, and that kind of leads into my second the reason that I really love this movie. Yep. Is the fact that it is the first instance where somebody accepted the brutality of Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. Which is, I believe, an inherent part of Shakespeare. And a lot of the criticism, not a lot of the criticism, but a lot of, a lot of the conversation. Not criticism, a lot mm-hmm. of conversation about this movie is that, as we said, it followed Sharon Tate's death. And people thought this was his response to it, his his working out his demons. Mm-hmm. And um, in an interview, you know, you know, sometime afterwards, he Polanski said, you know, most American critics assumed that I used the film for some cathartic purpose. Mm-hmm. In fact, I chose Macbeth because at least I thought that Shakespeare would preserve my motives from suspicion. Um, you know, if I had made a comedy, the charges would have been one of callousness. Yeah. And... I think that's I, I fully accept that. Well, I do too. I, I mean, like you know, the, they, you know, he kills Duncan, and then Macbeth is it's killed. A single, it's a single shot of killing Duncan. It's right, a single but even but, ne- but not even that. Solitary shot of each knife going into his throat. But in the play, he kills him, and Macduff kills Macbeth. And in the play, you know, Macbeth has Macduff's wife and children killed. Yeah, and, and so there's... and you're if you're making a movie. And you're being honest about some of that stuff. Why wouldn't you show? And they don't even really show all that much. I mean, all of the I've got a bunch of articles in front of me, and they all talk about, you know, they all talk about a brutal gang rape, which you see for like a half a second. But he, or even the bear baiting scene, which even is the bear baiting in, scene, which is added in, but you see the beginning and the aftermath of it. But I, I feel like a lot of the criticism, or a lot, a lot, a lot of discussion about it being a movie in response to Sharon Tate's death and about the violence being a response or the violence being excessive mm-hmm. misses the point of the fact that Shakespeare himself was a brutal man. Well, I wonder if so many people, and I don't mean to interrupt you, I wonder if a lot of people at this point um, in the you know, academia surrounding Shakespeare think of this stuff as what's happening in Polanski's Macbeth is too lowbrow for Shakespeare. Shakespeare should be elevated somehow beyond the bear baiting. See, I would I would almost agree with you, but the, there's 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 going to be a lot of lot of discussion of of the scholarship of of, of this play and um, University of Vermont professor Kenneth Rothwell who wrote Rothwell yeah extensively he's now our um, hero yeah no this this man <laughs> this man fucking dug into this movie um, but he he later wrote history of Shakespeare on screen from 2004 mm-hmm. uh, at least the second edition um, in response to all the criticism about its violence or about its being a response to Tate and he said the man who wrote Titus Adronicus might not himself have been quite so sque- squeamish mm-hmm. and Titus Adronicus itself mentions a w- woman having her limbs cut off mm-hmm. and stuffed with tree limbs People, a rape, a rape is sure. described. People are cooked in the pies. Shakespeare wasn't. Shakespeare's a, he's, he's a brutal man. Like, like these these plays call for for brutality. And and 
Macbeth himself, the the play itself is brutality. Right. I I, I take Macbeth, and this is a scholar, you know this is a philosophy that would come later on. Um, Macbeth kind of like represents that that kind of Tom Thomas Hobbes philosophy. You know, the life of man is short, uh-huh. brutish, miserable. Sure, sure, sure. And that is exactly you know I. I Maybe humanity wasn't to that point yet, or maybe society wasn't to that point yet where they could have those sort of self conversations. They were almost there, mm-hmm. but it was it was definitely around the time where people were kind of having those sort of self actualizations. And Shakespeare was definitely realizing that tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow is is definitely a speech that speaks to even ide- ideologies or ideations of, of nihilism. And yeah, and everyone had wanted to elevate Shakespeare to this level of of poet of absolute poetry, and even, you know, going back to that that Billington comment about like the poetry of Shakespeare, and the poetry of Macbeth. But the poetry of Macbeth is also how brutal it is, and mm-hmm. the fact that you see an arc of a man who who's a warrior, who's always a warrior throughout the play, who is nothing more than a warrior. All Macbeth knows is violence. All Macbeth knows is the battlefield, but who wants to elevate himself? Right. Macbeth is a play of ambition. Well, it's... Yeah, and, continue, sorry. And everyone before then hadn't really... I mean, one one person had, mm-hmm. and we're going to talk about that person later on. Later. Yeah, yeah. But nobody who had actually used the language of Shakespeare accepted the fact that Macbeth is seeped in blood. It's sure. in gore. And it is not, to me, a response to Sharon Tate. I fully buy what Polanski says. Mm-hmm. It is absolutely a pristine example of what this play represents. This play, it, you know, obviously in the language of the play, it, it says, you know, Macduff and Macbeth fight, Macbeth is slain. The language beneath it and the words yeah, beneath it right. demand this violence. But if you and if you look at you know how what is it the eleventh century it's supposed to be, so tenth eleventh century. How else is he going to slay him? You know what I mean? Like in life in the eleventh century doesn't mean the same thing that it does now. Like people died all the time for no reason whatsoever. So obviously there's going to be some blood involved. Obviously they're going to they're going to parade around Macbeth's head they on probably, a pike. They do that stuff now in you know in certain societies when they kill somebody but I'm like I, one of the articles and I don't have it in front of me and I'm looking for it when Mario was we talking we have so many fucking we have articles, a lot of articles talks about they kind of they go out of their way to mention the idea that um, they show when the when he goes when Macbeth goes back to the witches and the witches are at their cauldron um, that whole coven of witches and they're at their cauldron and they're, and they're reciting that incantation and they're talking about the you know liver of Jew and eye of whatever and blah, blah, blah. And they're showing everything. They're like throwing an active, um, visceral, tangible example of whatever they're saying into the pot. And they make a big deal of kind of saying that that's, you know, oh, that's so, you know, they, sh- they actually showed that. Well, he actually wrote it. Yeah. So maybe in plays in like the 1600s, they didn't actually have a liver of anything or an actual frog or but, whatever. But, but even, even, even the scholarship, even the scholarship of the time speaks about them holding the sheep's bladders beneath the costumes right. that would be pierced by actual swords. So I'm not even Those, sh- these plays were not, no, these plays weren't, weren't clean examples. These play, 
Macbeth itself, as, as an entire beginning, you know, the, the, the Act Two, Scene One, as we said, talks about erections and the penis not working. Like, like well, these yeah, were, the, the there idea, was there was a lot of baseness to it. There was there was there was baseness, but there was also like, um, a larger idea attached to the baseness. So something like you know Lady Macbeth saying how you know telling herself you know to unsex she you know to unsex herself, um, in the sense that she is. She, you know, for this moment, she needs, she can't be a standard issue woman of the 17th century. She needs to be, you know, in a lot of criticism, she's wanting to have, to be defined in the role of a man, where she's going to be planning and plotting and carrying out a murder of a king, Mm. you know, a regicide. And a woman, a standard issue woman in that time isn't going to do that stuff. Um just those ideas alone like all the blood and all the kind of suggested violence aligned with this idea of um some kind of gender fluidity you know means that shakespeare wasn't like you said he wasn't this kind of like um rogue of his time or or he was he also wasn't you know thought of or didn't think of himself as a kind of purveyor of of traditional standards of or, or you know traditional morals you know he was a he was writing above those morals he was writing to different morals he was writing about the ideas of how people disregard those morals and betray those morals for their own ambitions and i think that gets to the crux of why i love Plansky's macbeth above all else mm-hmm. the ending i, I always have a, a, a slight issue with the ending macbeth um it's a little tidy, a little tidy in the sense of you know a man whose overwhelming ambition causes his downfall. Mm-hmm. As a tragedy would be, you know, he, this man is the protagonist of you know Macbeth is the protagonist. He flies too close to the sun, burns and fades away, mm-hmm. and then you have some new law coming in and, and tidying everything up because mm-hmm. that was that was expected at the time. But I, I think. And to me, at that time, when I, when I saw it as a high schooler, and and still today, rewatching it again yesterday, Shakespeare punctuates a lot of philosophy that that wouldn't really be talked about for centuries. No, absolutely. And and the thing that I think Polanski understood, and, and you know, maybe even tying in himself, I don't know how much of an influence. I didn't read too much now, but tying ahead in the screenplay mm-hmm. is the fact that Macbeth isn't inherently nihilistic play and the fact that this revels in its nihilism I think is great sure um, a lot of people read the my absolute favorite you know soliloquy following the death of Lady Macbeth the tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow speech a lot of read it as like this kind of like slight fatalistic speech that's then bound about by his desire to still the rule but Polanski doesn't do that. Polanski keeps it reserved, keeps it the fact that he, sure, is, is testing the fate of, of his own death, but he's accepting it. He's accepting, he's accepting the fact that it doesn't mean anything. And, and there's a Vox.com article um, that talks about the delivery of that. Uh-huh. And it says John you know, Finch's reserved delivery, John Finch, who played Macbeth. Um, partly in voiceover and partly in a quiet monologue tells us more than any of his actual words do that by this point Macbeth is dead inside tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow 
creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time. And all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Mm, I agree with that. And, you know, a lot a lot of this is, is um, a lot of the previous adaptations that Macbeth had just been so theatrical, had been so based in, in just the volume of the voice and the impact of the voice. And this just felt like it was one of the first things I'd ever seen that truly understood what was being said. Um, David Thompson says in, in his new biographical dictionary of film from 2003, um, the violence, you know, the violence of Plansky's film is not especially prominent and that much more characteristic is the underlying alienation and hostility. The feeling that people are cut off unsupported by any shared view of life and society from this solitariness, the move towards acts of violence is stealthy, remorseless, and even comic. Mm -hmm. And I think that's especially punctuated. And the reason I adore this movie is Donald Bain going to the witches in the end, Mm -hmm. not in the play, but underlines the fact that the cycle of violence is continuing. That time is a flat circle. It's a, infinite cycle of violence and death and awfulness and ambition yeah. just forever. Which I think Polanski was Polanski alluded to in the scene um you know that I referenced before when he goes to see the witches again and they you know they brew the their their you know, they say their incantation over the cauldron and he looks in the cauldron and he sees kind of generation after generation of kings and they're holding up their 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 mirror and they're seeing the next you know they're seeing the next um, you know, uh, manifestation of 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 a king mm-hmm. in the mirror, and none of them are Macbeth again. Oh, yeah, after the second one, um, I think it's either the first or the second one. I think Banquo. Hold, one, yeah. I think the Banquo holds up a mirror, and then Macbeth yeah. sees himself, and then after that, Macbeth just sees a succession of different people, um, and then it ends though with um, Fleance, Banquo's son you know standing in the snow and and it's a recognition from macbeth as to kind of like even after all of these people are king oh fleance is still going to become king yeah you know how does that how does that work um and there's an interesting you know towards the, to the to the your point about the nihilism um macbeth's and it's in the play but it's you know really hammered into the movie um the idea of the witches kind of being of of nature, you know what I mean? Yeah. They're a naturalistic entity, um, and well, they get that they get that 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 brilliant discordant score um, that that punctuates them. That kind of like right that feels like it is the the force of nature itself. It's like the one score I think that really like the one score part that really works. Everything else sounds very synthetic. Yeah, um, no, no, hundred percent. But uh, that one I think really works from a mood and atmosphere perspective. Um, is that his subservience to the ideas or the visions provided by the witches? You know, if we're saying that the witches are of nature, um, he's really giving himself over to the nature of things. So by the end of the movie, you know, when he's sitting on his throne alone and is confronted by all those soldiers and ends up killing a bunch of people, he... and For you know, no he, reason. Like, he just no does re- it because it he, is. And he looks at the link... Of the chain where they had just tied up the bear, and he says, like, uh, you know, he said, makes a comment like, "I'm like a bear. I'm gonna have to fight myself out of this." Um, he knows where he is. Huh. He's not deluded himself anymore as to like what's supposed to be happening here. He's just obeying nature, and his reign of 
as king is only going to last as long as nature says it's going to last. Um, but that's that in and of itself is a nihilistic point of view because he has no control over it and he doesn't really give a shit anymore. Like, if he kills everybody, what does it matter? Like, he's king of nobody then. Nah. You know what I mean? And it's just, it kind of... It's a, it's a cycle. By the end, right. 100%. And by the end of the movie, Macbeth is totally aware of it and he's just sitting in it. And it's, um, it's odd for a Shakespeare play, you know, where... It's odd for an adaptation of the Shakespeare play where you're kind of reaching... After a certain point, you're reaching for where the order is going to be restored. But because of the nihilism and because of Donald Bain going back to the witches, order he's suggesting order is never going to be restored. No. This it's, is it's, the it's, order. It's an endless Chaos cycle. is the order. Yeah. It's an endless cycle of, of nature overwhelming. It's an endless cycle of ambition unearned. It's an endless cycle. And, and maybe, that is, maybe that's the one, the one thing that... that came in from the Sharon Tate issue. I don't know. I, I think a lot of I think a lot of films previous before the Sharon Tate issue had, had said yeah. that. But I, I think it's it's ultimately a point going back is is just the modernization of the play. Um you know audience modern audiences didn't need the bad guy, the villain tackled. They 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 don't need that. They 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 can understand the themes that were underlying well, Shakespeare and, and that says a hundred percent that that this is a violent cycle that will right. continue forever. Well, I've got this. I've got this. Another article here from um, Kenneth Rothwell, who we our now, good old bud, our good old friend Kenneth Rothwell. He might be dead. He's probably dead. I don't know. We should look. If at he's him. not dead, can we get him on? Yeah, we'll try to get him on. He'd probably be fucking stoked. Yeah, um, or just really annoyed. <laughs> That'll be the four-hour-old man story episode. That's fine. The I'll, one time I met Shakespeare, we'll give him beer. <laughs> um, so he's, he's in Vermont. That's close. I know it is. He'll probably bring beer. I would love to. We can go to Vermont. We can get some beer. We can meet oh. him at a brewery. Now we have two trips planned now. That's a high five. Um, he's writing about the idea of the youngness. You know, so a lot of the critics, I think, rejected the youngness. Of oh, yeah. The, the Finch. fact that Finch and uh, Annis. Yes. Princess Annis um, as Lady Macbeth. And, but I think that speaks... To, what he says, I think, speaks to the idea of how Polanski was really making a modern movie of a very old play. And he says that um, Lady Macbeth's freshness, guilelessness, um, suggests the chilling selfishness of the very young, more afraid of denying their own impulses than serving decency. And I think that's kind of what's happening here. Um, it changes, and he says it changes the Macbeths from deliberate murderers into confused drifters. And I really think that's what Polanski's illustrating here, is that Macbeth and, and, and Lady Macbeth had no real impulse for murder until the opportunity to commit murder was presented to them. Um, until the opportunity to enact whatever kind of nascent ambition was like they were harboring within themselves um, had a vehicle. Yeah. And in and the witch's, you know, prophecy and then with Duncan coming to their house, they finally saw an inn. And I think it's interesting in Macbeth that when Lady Macbeth goes mad She's not violently mad. She's not even strongly mad. She just seems ripped apart and scared. Yeah. Um, kind of speaking to the idea that... I mean, she's, she's naked in, in that scene. Right. She, she's, she's stripped bare. She's of, as of the most vulnerable all, that she's possible She's stripped bare of all ambition. She's stripped bare of just, just the core person beneath all that fabrication and all that machinations. 
that had built up throughout the play. And in going, you know, comparing again the actual movie to the criticism that like wants to tie it to Sharon Tate, and everyone points out like the nudity, you know, um, Francesca's Annis's nudity in it. She's got a really long wig on, so you only ever see. She she's like a child. She's a, she's yeah. she's like a child in that, and it's it's not sexualized in the least. Not sexualized at all. It's, it's she's just sitting, vulnerability. It's she's absolute vulnerability. Scene. Yeah, um, and it's and she's just totally broken. She's and she almost seems like she was never in control of anything at all. Which again speaks to the nihilism aspect of this is that they're just kind of acting on they're acting on You're their impulses against or with the current of of. I don't want to say time or power or whatever that was moving the force without that, them. the force that is nature. And that's in that they have no, they, they can either move with it. They can fight against it, but either way it's going in a certain direction. It is exactly. what it, I mean, it is what it is. And, and I, I think just, just for me seeing that and, I, and the reason, you know, I give credit, I cannot remember any teacher's name, but I, the reason I give credit to my teacher who, who who chose this variation alone is mm-hmm. is I, I think it was the first film of its time that was a direct adaptation of Shakespeare to really try to bring Shakespeare to a modern audience. And as somebody who, who you know, now and even back then appreciated Shakespeare for what, what he brought and, you know, just, just the, the drastic measures he took in, in bringing drama and, and changing the way we tell a narrative. Mm-hmm. Polanski is the first person with the bravery to fully accept that and fully go against the grain of what was believed, what was to that point the commonplace nature of it. Yeah, and if it isn't bravery, that's why why it's a pivotal film. Yeah, and if it isn't bravery, then it's just the openness. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like the openness to kind of like take you know the vulnerability when he's looking into the cauldron and they see him takes the baby out of the you know you know you will not be defeated by anyone like not born from like from mother born or whatever and they see him he sees him take the baby out of like a woman's stomach you know i mean there's like a cesarean section inside the cauldron um he's kind of done that to the play you know i mean he's kind of just looked at it and he's just ripped it open and say i need this is what i need to make this, that's to a, tell this. That's a fucking graphic description, but it Fuck works. Fuck yeah, it is. Yeah. That's perfect for this thing right here. But but ultimately, ultimately to me, it was a, it was a play of, an, an adaptation of vulnerability um, that, that ripped away all the artifice, and that's why it's 97 on my list. Make sure to follow us at pivotalfilm.com. Pivotalfilm.com. Um, you can email us at pivotalfilmpodcast at gmail.com. Com, you should please, I guess, My, subscribe to us at, on Stitcher or Podcast Addict or iTunes, iTunes, whatever. Don't forget to rate us whatever. on iTunes. Rate us on iTunes. Send us some give emails. Us, give us a solid G rating. Yeah, I just actually want to give a quick shout out to my aunt who helped aunt. us. My aunt, aunt. It's New England. It's my aunt. Uh, my aunt it's Terry. Barely, it's barely New England. <laughs> My Aunt Terry, who helped us set up our RSS feed, which allowed this to go live on all of these different platforms simultaneously. Oh, really? Did we not have that figured out? Yeah, it's everywhere now. So I just I upload it to one thing, and it just <laughs> goes everywhere. And I don't know how that happened, but she knows how it happened, and we say thank you very much oh, for I do, helping I do. us to do that. I, do. I just find it funny that like us as elder millennials didn't know what the fuck we were doing. No. And I don't know what to do. Obviously, 
knows their shit, got <laughs> yeah. it figured out. I'm like, okay. As soon as as soon as I <laughs> rethought we put this on the web and it would just figure itself out. As soon as I saw something other than a slash in like whatever an RSS feed is, I was like, I'm all done. I don't know. I don't know what to do with this anymore. <laughs> I, I, I I don't know anything. All right. But uh, so yeah, episode 97. Thank you very much. Um, go see a movie, drink a beer, and we will talk to you next week. This is a little film. Yeah.